I am very worried about some of the choices that China is making. Russian influence on the Ukrainian economy and politics has been central throughout. And what does Google, Facebook, Elon Musk, Sam Altman decide about the future of technology? Russia is not going to play a major role in the future of technology. Hi, I'm Greg Mastrider, and this is my podcast on the future of humanity and trends of development of our society. Today, here with me is Dr. Professor Darren Ajimoglu, a legend and author of many best-selling books, including Why Nations Fail and many others that I've considered uh, for a long time must-read books, and I'm thrilled to be here with you, Darren, today. Thank you for joining in. We will talk about where our world, our society is headed, about your theories, how they have developed over the uh, last years, and many other topics. Uh, excited to talk about this with you. Thank, Thank you. you, Greg. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so the first question I would ask is, how would you, in uh, broad strokes, so to say, define Uh, where our human civilization is headed currently. You have analyzed it uh, uh, as a scientist, as a, 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 an expert in socioeconomic status, in the trends of how the governments uh, uh, are evolving. What is your take on uh, the general direction we are headed in right now? Well, to be honest, I don't know, Greg. I think we are at a critical point right now precisely because there are many possible choices ahead of us. And this is both because of economic and technological reasons, and it's also because of political reasons. In terms of economic and technological ones, we are at the cusp of some very transformative technologies being rolled out broadly. Generative AI is just the tip of the iceberg in some sense. But many of these technologies, by their nature, also create versatile application opportunities, many different things you can do with them. And these different directions have widely differing but hugely consequential implications. For example, we can use AI-type tools to in, uh, intensify surveillance, collect more data about individuals in a way that enables authorities or large firms to be more manipulative, to have more control and less autonomy for individuals. We can use them just for automation. Automation is normal. Many technologies have been used for automation, but AI widens the possibilities for automation. And if automation becomes so extensive that it sidelines humans, it makes most of us not so important, much more dispensable. It reduces their uh, important role in production, their agency, and it, of course, widens inequality. But on the other hand, we can also use these technologies to create better communication methods more democratic participation, you know, the ability of modern societies that are much, much larger than, say, ancient city-states to have deliberative democracies, deliberative political participation is now a, uh, a reality, whereas it was always mentioned, but was mostly not quite a feasible thing given the technological know-how. The promise of generative AI is create new technologies that are complementary to humans, that make us better decision makers, much more better, much, much more skilled in the tasks that we want to specialize in, whether we want to be a carpenter, electrician, uh, or a podcast uh, presenter. We can uh, use these technologies for creating new tasks in the production process to make clerical and knowledge workers much more productive. So there are many wide Uh, possibilities that are open to us. We can also use these technologies in, in the service of dealing with other problems, including climate change, uh, controlling pandemics. So there are many possibilities, 
But if you look at the details, each one of them has both different consequences and requires different actions from us. Now, my concern about the future of humanity is that we are at the cusp of making the wrong decisions. Much more surveillance, much more data collection, much more automation, much more power in the hands of governments and big corporations. And that also immediately brings me to the geopolitical and political choices, because you can see once you realize that these technologies offer us a wide range of opportunities, and different opportunities create different winners and losers, empower different actors. You know, in China, are you going to use this more for surveillance or more for citizen empowerment? Well, it's not a decision that can be taken without taking into consideration what the bosses of the Chinese Communist Party want. What does the international geopolitical context determine in terms of whether this is going to be a race between China and Russia? I'm sorry, China, Russia also, but China and the US about which country is going to be ahead in terms of using these technologies and that race uh, locks in a particular direction. And what does Google, Facebook, Elon Musk, Sam Altman decide about the future of technology? Because we have created a very hierarchical society where a handful of you know, very narrow interests are uh, highly disproportionately powerful in these, these, these directions. So politics and economics and technology, I think they are all coming together in this very important moment, and we have to be aware of these very important choices. Uh, that's the topic that has been uh, on my mind for many years, and I've uh, spoken to many guests of my podcast about that, and there are basically uh, two, I would say, camps, those uh, who say that the advantages of all this technological progress outweigh the disadvantages, and others who are less optimistic and say that we are on the cusp of not just some problems, but existential risks for, uh, for our civilization. If we uh, speak about those two camps, which one uh, would, you, uh, would you join? Or maybe you are in between, uh, where well, are yeah, you I mean. I think I would say that a lot of that is a false dichotomy. And in fact, it is that false dichotomy that makes us really passive in uh, when it comes to making uh, more participatory decisions about the future of technology. First of all, I think those who say we have nothing to worry about are widely wrong. We have everything to worry about. If you look at how digital technologies have been used over the last 50 years, they have widened the inequalities. They have empowered the largest corporations we have ever seen in, in, in history. They have been used for surveillance. They have been for used for manipulation. And it is the same companies that are in charge of AI. We could create even bigger inequalities, a truly two-tier society. We could create a complete meltdown of agency individuals that are you know, not important players in the production economy because they don't have valuable skills. We have delegated everything to machines, even when they don't have really comparative advantage in doing so. They don't become citizens because they are fed social media lies and manipulative uh, adverts and and other uh, sort of signals from companies or from governments. I think that is a real dystopian future. But that is very different from the existential risk crowd that you know, emphasize how you can have autonomous intelligence, artificial general intelligence, or killer robots. I think those really caricaturize the risks, and in doing so, they pacify us. Because you know, if the AI is out of the bottle, uh, the genie is out of the bottle, and we're we're not going to be able to stop it. Well, there's nothing for us to do. Let's go back to video games. If 
everything's going to work out. All we need to do is trust the genius of Sam Altman and Elon Musk. Again, we have nothing to worry about. Let's go back to our social media posts. So I think it's in the middle, but I'm, of course, much closer to existential risk people, but for different reasons than the killer robots. Uh, which reasons do you believe are Because uh, it's it's the, most it's the reasons related to inequality, it's reasons related to surveillance, it's reasons related to how these technologies are being used by the largest organizations humanity has seen, the Chinese Communist Party, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. I think in history, when we have a very acute imbalance of political and social power, things have never gone very well. That was the major thesis of why nations fail. It's even more so in the context of my new book with Simon Johnson, The Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And I think by empowering the Chinese Communist Party, a mega, amazingly powerful organization that has entered every capillary of Chinese society and now has AI and big data tools to monitor society very tightly in empowering Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, again, amazingly large corporations with huge amounts of economic and social power. I think we are creating a very, very severe imbalance. Yes, it seems that we are. Um, what would you say are the most... Uh important steps for humanity to take to uh, counter those risks and to uh, hire the likelihood of uh, a bright future as opposed to a dystopian one? Well, let me take a step back and <clears throat> describe what I think could be elements of a much better future. This view that I'm going to express is based on a few conceptual pillars. One of them, again, each one of them will have people who disagree with it. But let me lay them out so that the argument is clear. First of all, I am a big believer in the uniqueness of human creativity and the value, value uh, of the diverse, versatile skills that humans have. Therefore, I do not believe it's socially desirable or economically super productive if we rush to automate everything. For me, A better future is one in which machines work with humans rather than work against humans or instead of humans. This is a very subtle point because it sometimes gets mentioned in self-contradictory ways. If you are somebody who believes that machines will ultimately do everything better than humans, or if you believe that humans are error-prone, not so intelligent, easily manipulated fools, you must believe that machines are going to be better than humans or machines are going to be better than 99% or 95% of humans. Yeah. Perhaps a small cadre of very genius engineers and scientists may remain. That calls for a very different type of future. I read history. I read my own uh, statistical work and my own conceptual work over uh, more recent data as well as with historical data to suggest that that's not true. Machines are much more productive with the combination comes by creating new tasks, new functionalities, better decision-making for humans. Periods in which we have built rapid growth and shared prosperity, for example, the three decades following World War II, were periods of rapid automation, but also the creation of myriad new tasks for workers that expanded employment and actually reduced inequality in the midst of this rapid growth. I'm also a believer in democracy. Of course, democracy has its failings. Of course, people can sometimes be fooled. Of course, people can sometimes support dictators such as Putin under the guise of democracy. But on the whole, democracy is 
much better than the alternatives, both because it avoids the worst mistakes and also it elevates people. People become better citizens when they are empowered by the democratic process. But democracy is not independent from underlying technologies. If you don't have a town square, if you don't have a voting system, if you don't have civil society organizations that are enabled, democracy cannot function. And if you have surveillance, that makes democracy much harder. If you have extensive manipulation, it makes democracy much harder. So technologies are going to be important for the types of uh, openings for democracy. In the 20th century, after the early phase of radio, which was used for manipulation purposes, the media, again, once it uh, was liberated from the hands of rubber barons, was a very important input in democracy. So that was a technological background to democracy. The hope for social media in around 2000, in early 2000s, was it's going to be a democratizing tool. But the way that social media was used was actually quite anti-democratic. Perhaps even our capacities for creating deliberative structures was not high enough at the time. Today it is. We can use AI, generative AI, much better much faster advanced logic chips in order to create a dynamic democratic environment online, much more reliable information exchange, much greater vehicles for political participation. But that's not the path that we are currently going. The alternative surveillance data collection manipulation is also made easier by these tools. Again, those choices are going to matter. So therefore, my perspective is that we have a choice to use these technologies in a more pro-human way help humans in the production process, create new tasks that are going to be productive, that are going to create new products, new capabilities, better decision-making for workers, create new tasks for a pro-democratic direction. So those are the things that we have to aspire. And I think recognizing that aspiration, recognizing that these are both technologically feasible and socially desirable directions, I think is 50% of the battle. And that's why I am objecting to this false dichotomy, everything's going to be fine or killer robots are going to come, it really makes us miss this middle ground where uh, we can really leverage these technologies for something much better, in a much more pro-human direction. But we're not going to go there by ourselves. So this is where civil society comes in. This is where regulations and laws are necessary. This is where democracy, even though it's wounded right now, uh, for a variety of reasons, geopolitical, social media, inequality, political polarization, but democracy is still active in many countries, and we have to use that democratic process for making this more desirable pro-human direction a reality. I f- fully agree with, uh, with the direction uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that you are implying we should take, uh, but I would like to um, think about concrete steps to enable all this. So... Uh, how to fix the wounded democracy, for example? Does it uh, does it have to be some uh, rethinking of uh, uh, democratic principles? Does it have to be some new decentralized Web three type of uh, democracy, or uh, can we fix uh, the the building without destroying its foundation? What's what's your take on this? I think there are some deep questions you're asking, and I don't know the answer to all of them. For example, Web 3.0, is it a hype or is that a type of decentralization that can actually be useful? I don't know the answer to that. I I suspect some of it is hype, but I do believe that there are feasible decentralization paths that are much better than the centralization of data, centralization of information in the hands of, be it the Communist Party or be it Google. So uh, I think the details matter, and we have to work towards those details. But we have to identify why is it that democracy is not functioning. I think democracy is not functioning because we have lived through transformative changes with 
the economic structure of most industrialized nations changing rapidly, globalization, huge changes in immigration, huge changes in geopolitical balances. And in the midst of it, we have actually let inequality get out of hand, and we have also let political manipulation become very intense. And it's the combination of these two things that have fueled polarization and the collapse of consensus-building institutions. So if this uh, diagnosis is right, we have to use whatever is left of democracy to recreate that middle ground. And then on the basis of that, strengthen it by perhaps providing new methods for political participation. You know, what was the hope of early uh, sort of optimists in social media? They thought that social media would create the equivalent of a town square where people would exchange information, political views, seek consensus on an equal basis. The equal basis is really important. This is sort of an idea that goes back to Jürgen Habermas that uh, sort of the most pro-democratic exchanges come in when, you know, Elon Musk doesn't dominate the conversation, your boss doesn't have a complete veto over your opinion. At the end, social media completely undermined that for a number of reasons. But most importantly, social media immediately inherited all of the social hierarchies and amplified them. There were influencers, there was Elon Musk, there was this celebrity, that celebrity, you know, it was the opposite of a town square right from the beginning. And second, instead of information exchange, especially with the advance or advances in algorithms that created, you know, curated recommendations for in- increasing engagement, it started feeding in misinformation or emotionally charged topics so that, you know, uh, companies could better monetize your data. So both of these were antithetical to the democratic aspiration that some of the early techno-optimists had. But technologically, I see both of these as feasible, even more so today with generative AI and much better processors that we have. We can create spaces in which uh, we have the digital versions of town squares uh, where people can exchange information with limits on manipulation, which again, here is where algorithm can help rather than feed in uh, manipulation to us, they can actually help us identify manipulation. They can find ways in which companies monetize their information differently rather than individualize digital ads. They can try to erase rather than amplify the hierarchies that exist in the offline world. Do I know how to do that? No, I don't. You know, Mastodon, an alternative to Twitter, which is not perfect, but was, I think, born out of some aspirations that are not completely dissimilar to what I've just expressed, has not worked out that well. I mean, it has not taken over and doesn't look like it will ever take over uh, to Twitter. And, uh, and and in fact, it's it's probably much less likely to have a critical mass than things like Facebook's or Meta's threads. So So we have a long way to go. I don't know how... Uh, where the big breakthroughs are going to come. But some of it has to be economic as well. How are these companies going to survive? There are some inspiring cases. Wikipedia, I think, is one of the most successful companies, and it has survived and thrived in a, on ba- the basis of a nonprofit model. What will be the alternative to digital ads and manipulation fed Twitter, social media, uh, Facebook, 
type of model? I don't know, but I think there are some options that we should explore. Do you think that uh, the state should incentivize such uh, big tech companies to change the way they approach uh, disinformation, fake news, uh, uh, democratization of uh, exchange of ideas that you mentioned, etc., etc.? Should it be the state to to make those companies uh, do that? Or should it be economic incentives uh, of the free market, as you started saying, people choosing um, more uh, democracy, more freedom, more fairness in uh, IT uh, products they use and switching from, for example, uh, Facebook or Twitter to different platforms? Because as you already mentioned, Mastodon and other cases, uh, other apps uh, or websites that tried to disrupt this and uh, make this uh, situation better, they have failed. And Web3.0 uh, services that try to do the same also all are very niche. So what to do? Excellent question. So let me start with two background comments and then I'll come to an answer to your question. First of all, I am completely convinced on the basis of my read of historical data and current data that the state cannot be the driver of innovation. Markets are where innovation incentives coalesce into new products and new creative ways of approaching existing problems, even more so creating new demands and new needs. Economic incentives that work through markets are essential. The Russian government, Chinese government, U.S. government, they're not going to create the alternative to Facebook or uh, Twitter or Google or Microsoft. But the market process unfettered also does not work very well. It makes companies gravitate towards whatever is short-term profitable without its hugely consequential social effects. It intensifies dominance of a few players. It sometimes prioritizes automation instead of creating new tasks that are valuable for workers. So the market process needs to be regulated. Who will do that? Well, one alternative is the state. But beware, and this is what you know James Robinson and My Way Nations Fail was about, oftentimes states are in cahoots with economic elites and they try to suppress innovations, manipulate people as well. You know, I don't need to emphasize that to somebody who comes uh, from Russia. So there's only a limit to how much you can trust a state. And that was, in fact, the theme of my uh, third book with James Robinson, The Narrow Corridor, where we try to articulate a way of thinking of state policies and regulations and laws embedded in an active civil society. This is what the essence of the narrow corridor was. You need the capacity of the state balanced by the activity, activism, involvement of civil society. And that same principle now, I think, should be applied to the regulation of technology. And therefore, yes, I believe the state is state as a role, but only once it is itself controlled well. And that role is not to decide what's the, the nature of every new technology or anything like that, but provides corrective tools in terms of regulations, taxes, and so on to steer the direction of technology in a more productive direction. So let me give you an example of what I have in mind. Uh, energy. So this is a clear area in which one type of technology has huge negative social effects 
fossil fuel, coal, carbon, create carbon emissions that have already created very damaging climate change. I'm saying that from Ankara, where it's 102 degrees Fahrenheit right now. Uh, And left to its own devices, the market would have just doubled down on oil, coal, which are which were much, much cheaper than any alternative technologies in the 1980s, 1990s, even 2000s. But it is also clear, I think, to anybody who really looks at this objectively, that we have to redirect technological change towards renewables and other less carbon-intensive ways of producing energy. And lo and behold, actually, with a modicum of intervention, there has been a redirection of technology today wind power and solar power have come down by more than tenfold in the last 20 years, and they are cost competitive with fossil fuels. How did that happen? It happened due to two things. Societal pressure, people as workers and consumers wanted clean energy from their employers and from their from the companies supplying them products. Some of it may be gimmicks. Yeah, perhaps electric vehicles are not really all they're cracked up to be. Yes, Google says it's carbon neutral, but it really consumes a huge amount of energy, but there has been a tremendous advance overall. And second, government policies in some countries in the form of carbon taxes in the US and in many other countries also in the form of subsidies to wind, solar, and other clean forms of energy. And these have been quite essential in redirecting technological change. So you see there government policy embedded and complemented by societal pressure. And I think that is the key for redirecting technological change and finding a more profitable and more socially beneficial direction for AI and generative AI. It sounds realistic for democratic nations, but uh, for, let's say, China or Russia, there is no uh, or not sufficiently developed uh, civil society to, to, to push the state to absolutely, intervene. Absolutely. You know, this is why geopolitics matters. And let me first say a couple of things. First of all, I know you are from Russia, but unfortunately or fortunately, Russia is not going to play a major role in the future of technology. Neither is Turkey, neither is India, neither is Brazil. Actually, that's part of the failure. I think these countries, more Brazil, Turkey, Indonesia, India than Russia, I hope, should have a say about the future of technology because they're going to be widely affected by it. But right now, the future of technology is decided in the US, Europe, a little bit of Canada, and a lot in China. So that's the geopolitical context. And that geopolitical context creates a a number of problems, but also some important lessons. Now, the US has a clear leadership in AI. There are some fields, such as surveillance technologies, face recognition, where China is on a par, perhaps even by some metrics better than the US, but overall, especially in the more, you know, higher order AI tasks, including generative AI, the US is far ahead. So that creates, there is a lot of room for a, you know, at least semi-democratic nation to play a shaping role in the regulation of technology and the direction of technology. Second, you know, I am very worried about some of the choices that China is making. But if you look at it objectively, China is better at regulating technology than the U.S. In fact, U.S. can learn a lot from China, interestingly, 
because one of the common arguments in the US media and discussion among policymakers fueled by you know Silicon Valley's lobbying machines is that you cannot regulate AI. AI is unregulatable. It's so advanced, so fast, so decentralized that you would be a fool to try to regulate it. Well, China shows that's not right. They have very successfully regulated AI. Now, I don't like what they're doing with AI. I don't like their objectives. I don't like their methods, but they're showing that it's feasible. So that's a very important thing. Proof of concept is you know, a very important step in designing policies. So imagine that we have China's determination, but you know, much better objectives, not to create a surveillance state, state by led by the Communist Party, but create a more competitive environment with a direction of research that is more pro-human, we can do it. European Union shows it's feasible. They've made mistakes, so has China, but U.S. has a lot to learn from these countries. That's the useful part of the geopolitical context. It actually has a demonstration effect. On the other hand, the dominant effect of the geopolitical context, and there I agree with you, that makes the situation more bleak, is that there is a real and imaginary war between China and the U.S. over technology. So the second argument that tech proponents or Silicon Valley's you know, lobbyists would give you is that you cannot regulate AI, you shouldn't try it, but if you did it, then you would create a security risk and a permanent disadvantage for the US against China. So China fear-mongering is yet another powerful argument against regulation of AI. Again, we have to break that. I think if US follows, if US leads, China will follow except for surveillance technologies and a few things, but U.S.'s technological lead will have a fundamental effect on China. And that's exactly what's happened in, uh, in, uh, in, in the energy sector. Now, China is ahead in production of solar panel, and many of the innovations came from U.S. and uh, European innovators, but China achieved scale and is following on that footstep. Sure, they are still building coal-powered plants, but China is going to be a major engine of building green energy in the next decade because of the solar panel contribution. So I think the geopolitical context is not as bleak as the China-US rivalry fear-mongering would imply. Well, that's an interesting take, especially about the fact that we have to learn from China. I'm also a proponent of this idea. I'm going to to travel and live in China for some time. I'm learning Chinese, so maybe <laughs> maybe I will also have some insights. You from can that. you can report back on that after your yeah. I, in I will I will I, I will record some podcasts there as well. So so yeah, it will be very very exciting. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, since we already touched the topic of Russia. I'm uh, originally a Russian blogger, now in exile uh, because of my political views. Uh, But I think the case with Russia and Ukraine uh, is interesting for discussing uh, uh, how your theories might have evolved, starting from your uh, why nations fail, for example. Because um, over the past, I think, three decades, Ukraine has uh, exhibited uh, hallmarks of uh, um, robust civil society with uh, some democratic uh, processes going on, a uh, large number of NGOs, volunteers, donors, yet it has uh, struggled to achieve sustainable economic growth. And on the other hand, Russia, uh, which uh, is much more authoritarian, uh, Russia has showcased uh, um, some impressive economic growth uh, for some periods of time. 
and uh, not, ju- not just due to natural uh, resources exports, but also, for example, from IT sectors like, like Yandex. You are in Turkey now, and uh, Yandex is also a large IT company that, that dominates not just the Russian market, but some international foreign mar- markets. So it seems that um, the economic prosperity in Russia uh, might have provided uh, a basis for consolidating the dictatorial regime under Putin. Uh, so uh, the question that I'm uh, driving at is how might this uh, situation with developments in Russia and Ukraine, uh, how, how has this affected your uh, conclusions that you've drawn about the, this interplay of economic growth and political regime, uh, more democratic versus more authoritarian? authoritarian? Um, have your views on this uh, changed or uh, is this yet another proof of uh, what you uh, wrote about many years ago? Well, first of all, uh, no, I do not think uh, Russia versus Ukraine have changed my opinion. I'll tell you one dimension in which I've always, James and I, James Robinson, and I have always admitted, you know, certain very important things are missing from why nations fail partly because our knowledge was not as extensive on those, partly because we had to keep the book no longer than 600 pages. Uh, But the international context, you know, we took a nation-state perspective and we did not dwell on how the dynamics between nations, foreign influences, etc., would be central. Those were, for us, important contextual details. Sometimes war or other things acted like shocks, but we did not dwell on them. But of course, if you want to think about Ukraine versus Russia, it is the ensemble that you have to study. Russian influence on the Ukrainian economy and politics has been central throughout. Uh, The other aspects of this problem, I think, are, in my reading anyway, are completely in line with the framework in Why Nations Fail. So one of the things that, one of the concepts in Why Nations Fail, we emphasize is extractive growth, meaning growth that takes place under extractive institutions, and that happens via a variety of channels. One of them, very relevant for China, is through natural growth, sorry, natural resource growth. So some of Russian growth is just like the growth in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabian growth does not turn Saudi Arabia into a poster child for economic success because it's just based on oil. For For Russia, some of it is oil and gas. The other type of extractive growth that happens is when a dictator, authoritarian, or oligarchic regime cordons off a part of the the economy so that that part can thrive without threatening political power uh, or destabilizing the power base. And I think uh, Russia, from the beginning, did that with the tech sector. So the tech sector had some clear lines. Within those lines, it wasn't uh, subject to the same type of political manipulation, assassination, criminalization that happened in, say, the oil and gas sector. And that created a uh, diversion for you know educated Russians as well as a fertile ground for some new technologies to emerge, in many cases building on what was already available in the Western uh, technology frontier, in some cases, you know, waiting over them. So I think these two, but especially oil and gas, explain the Russian uh, economic growth over the last 30, 35 years. In the case of Ukraine, I think uh, Ukraine has shown amazing versatility 
and energy in its civil society uh, against you know very adverse conditions and odds it has undertaken two color revolutions so to speak bottom up but where do these adverse conditions come from they come a lot from russia it's the russian interference in politics that makes it very difficult for democratic governments to actually implement policies that are going to be pro-growth it's the oligarchic nature of the Ukrainian economy, some of it directly because of trade and uh, support from Russia, some of it because of the inheritance that R- Ukraine got uh, right after the collapse of communism when you know it was insiders who took control of the government and, and solidified that oligarchic basis. So I think those are some of the factors that held back the Ukrainian economy. I've had the pleasure of visiting Kiev twice over the last uh, several years, both times before the war. Uh, And I I was amazed by how much democratic energy there is among young Ukrainians, how much democratic participation there is, but also the sort of the power of oligarchy in that in that society and how it was struggling in order to counter the power uh, and the dominance of some very large companies that were very active in politics and how, you know, that is opening the way to various types of media dominance and economic manipulation and so on. I think those are problems that the Ukrainian uh, nation would have struggled with even without Russia, but of course with the Russian influence it made things much harder but i still think that when the war ends uh ukrainian economy will rebound very quickly showing that actually the sort of the intensification of democracy that has happened in in ukraine and probably the unification of the nation in this time of war would help on that as well will actually have i think economic dividends we will see i hope sooner rather than later uh, well, also, I hope sooner rather than later for Russia as well. I think Putin yeah. is a very successful dictator. He has formed a very powerful network that controls the economy. But I think his grip is not as tight as w- might first meet the eye. So I don't think it is impossible for Putin's regime to fall in Russia. But of course, when that happens, there will be a period of instability. You know, the, the difference is, you know, uh, Ukraine has experience with, you know, democratic governance for, you know, about a decade, uh, <clears throat> which which Russia lacks. So what will happen? Many opposition figures have been eliminated or have been sidelined. So new structures will have to emerge. So the struggle that Russia will have is more difficult after Putin goes. Um, what's your estimated timeline for uh, recovery of democratic institutes uh, in Russia, as well as uh, economic uh, growth. How soon after the fall of the regime could it? Well, happen? I, I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. I cannot give a an exact date. But let me say one of the ideas that I find very troubling, and I hear from time to time, is that there is something in the Russian culture, Russian psyche, in the Orthodox religion. Uh, that makes Russians not sufficiently democratic. I think that's just complete fantasy. If you look at 19th century, some of the very innovative ideas in science, literature, political thought came from Russia. I think Russians have shown political will to participate during various different time periods. So I think once Vladimir Putin goes, and if he goes in a way that 
leads to the collapse of the clientelistic criminalized state that he has formed, there will be a period of turbulence. But after that, I don't see if if the right choices are made during that time period, if Putin is not replaced by an ultra-Russian nationalist, for example, I see all the reasons for Russia to develop a very successful democracy. Well, I certainly hope it does and it will. So, um, from my pseudonym, Greg Mastreader, one might imply that I like books and uh, book recommendations. And that's true. <laughs> I always uh, I always ask my guests for book recommendations and uh, for a list of books that have uh, influenced them uh, most. So I'd like uh, you to give your recommendations, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. Which are the books that uh, have influenced you most, first of all? And second of all, uh, what would you recommend uh, probably the books that everyone uh, or every thinking person should read. Well, I, I'm not sure that I can. I, I, I like so many books, and but for almost every book, I also have my reservations. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to give one or two, but let me give you some recent ones that I think are truly thought-provoking. Uh, one, and this is actually quite relevant for thinking about democracy, in my opinion, is Richard Rangham's The Goodness Paradox, which goes back to human origins and why there are parts of our evolutionary history that makes us, that gives us some of the tools that could then be useful for democracy. Another one that I would recommend is Michael Sandel's Tyranny of Merit, uh, which is more relevant for perhaps Western nations and especially the United States, but how we can fool into an ideology of meritocracy without really understanding what it implies for our future. Another one, a fun read that I would recommend is by Megan O'Glibbon called uh, God, Human, Animal, Machine, which is about uh, how many of the ideas about artificial general intelligence and supernatural powers of AI are really religious in nature uh, and go back to sort of uh, uh, the same type of interpretations that exist in religious texts. So it's actually a very provocative book uh, that hasn't received enough attention. So, so those are some of the so three non-fiction books I would recommend. Uh, in terms of fiction, uh, I think we lost Hilary Mantel uh, last year, I think her uh, trilogy, Henry VIII's uh, time in, in England, are wonderful, great history, but wonderful writing and wonderful fiction. Uh, so I would, I would recommend those, that those three books by Hilary Mantel uh, very much in case people haven't actually discovered her. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. And uh, the links to the books that you've recommended will all be in the video description and in the description of the audio version of the podcast, as usual. Uh, any uh, Russian classics that you like, by any chance? Oh, I, 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 uh, I grew up when I was in my teenage years reading Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Gogol, Chekhov, and uh, uh, Turgenev. I am a huge fan of Russian literature, but I must say I have not kept up with the uh, Russian literature of the second half of the 20th century. I did read some of the more sort of politically charged uh, Soviet literature, uh, mm -hmm. such as uh, Gorky and Ehrenberg, but I wasn't quite taken by them. 
And I don't know the more recent ones, unfortunately. But it's still great to hear that uh, there are some uh, uh, Russian influences <laughs> on you <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. So, so yeah, the Russian classics are are absolutely great. Uh, thank you very much, Darren. I will be uh, following, uh, and I'm sure that many of my followers will also be, will be following your uh, research on uh, topics that uh, define the future of our society. I hope that you and other experts uh, will figure out ways to make our future brighter uh, and not bleaker. And I wish you the Nobel Prize in uh, economics, because uh, that definitely, definitely that's something that is uh, uh, deserved. Thank you very much for this podcast. Thank you very discussion. much, Greg. It was really uh, great to be with you. Fantastic questions. And uh, of course, good luck to you and to all the Russian and Ukrainian people, because I think people of that region deserve a much brighter future. And I believe they will ultimately have a brighter future. This has been Greg Mastreader's podcast. Follow for more episodes on all podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Hit the like button. Leave your comments in the comment section. See you. Bye-bye.